From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Welcome, Cindy and Steve. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, here are the issues. A leaked draft shows the U.S. Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling that for five decades has protected women's abortion rights. A statement from the court confirmed that the draft opinion authored by Justice Samuel Alito and published by the political journalism organization Politico was authentic. Chief Justice John Roberts called its leak a betrayal of the confidences of the court, and he promised an investigation. President Joe Biden warned that overturning Roe v. Wade would represent a huge change in American law and could imperil a wide range of other civil rights. The polls in the states of Ohio and Indiana on Tuesday decided which candidates the Republican and Democratic parties will field in the upcoming midterms, which will determine the makeup of the U.S. legislature. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen unveiled a new package of sanctions That includes a ban on all Russian oil, with crude oil imports stopping within six months and imports of refined products by the end of the year. President Biden used a visit to a missile production facility in the U.S. state of Alabama to push for congressional approval for legislation to send more military aid to Ukraine. Japan and South Korea report that North Korea launched a ballistic missile, the latest in a series of tests that have upset the North's neighbors and drawn firm condemnation from the U.S. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Steve, the Supreme Court draft ruling has so many issues attached to it. However, let's look at the leak aspect of it first. Chief John Roberts condemns the leak and has ordered a Supreme Court marshal to investigate it. Is the leak itself a crime, and do you think the person will come forward that leaked it? The leak itself is probably not a crime. It is super sensitive, but it doesn't come with the kind of top secret label of information that goes to national security issues in which a leak could be prosecuted for. So as far as legal issues are concerned, whoever leaked this probably won't face any legal issues. However, there are always the workplace issues, the issues of who can you trust among your workers. This is a really sensitive opinion. It goes to one of the biggest, the most contentious issues in the country. The nation is pretty much split on abortion, although there is a majority of people in the United States who believe abortion should be legal and available. Whether or not there are restrictions on that, that's another case. But most Americans, about 54, 55 percent in amalgamation of polls, believe that abortion should be legal in the United States. The biggest parlor game going on here in Washington is who leaked it? Did it come from any of the justices? Aside from the nine justices, and when you really break it down, the three liberal justices probably would not have had access to this opinion. So it's really, you're going to look at the justices who might have leaked it. It's only the six conservatives 
who might have leaked it. And then there are probably about 50 to 100 other people who might have had access to it. So the speculation on who leaked it is one thing and why they leaked it is another game that most of Washington is playing. Why would this come out of the court now to lay the foundation of the ruling so that when it comes in June, and we all expected in June or July this ruling to come down, now it's got a little bit more of a runway so that when it does come down, perhaps the reaction will be a little bit more dissipated. The Chief Justice, John Roberts, is launching an investigation, but honestly, we may never get to the bottom of who leaked it and why. Right, Kim, as Steve said, the country was bracing for a decision maybe in June, but the fact that it was leaked and came out just really, I think all sides, no matter where they came down on the issue, were first of all just shocked. And of course, those who are proponents of a woman's right to choose abortion, there was just a firestorm of outrage. And on the side who oppose abortion, interestingly, there seemed to be among Republican elected officials and lawmakers more of a focus on the leak and anger about the leak. And although you had, of course, activists on either sides of the issue, you know, some taking to the streets to protest and saying after 50 years of having this as an established right for women to be able to choose an abortion, that this is a huge change. Of course, those who oppose it, you know, were relieved and celebrating. And the result is that now a massive fence is being put up around the Supreme Court and the White House and Democratic senators are scrambling to see if there's some way that they could react to possibly codify this fundamental right to an abortion in most cases into law. But there again, we know that Democrats have the smallest of majorities in the Senate and that Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has voted with Republicans on this and other issues. So Democrats are scrambling now to see if there's anything that they can do to counter this, if indeed this is what comes out. And there's very little that Democrats or the White House can do on their own to stop what the Supreme Court is likely to rule. There are very few legislative options, as Cindy mentioned, with the kind of very slim majorities the Democrats have. And President Biden has very, very few tools at his disposal in the executive branch to be able to do any of that. And how will Democrats capitalize on this leaked opinion for the midterm elections? Democrats have been looking for something that will prod a larger turnout in the November midterm elections. And this issue may be the spark for the Democrats. They are mobilizing and trying to get more women to go out and vote. In this country, more women are registered to vote than men and women vote in larger proportions than men do. The November midterm elections are usually lower turnout elections because there's no one running for president in these midterm elections. It's all Congress and state legislatures. One of the other things to look for politically is if this opinion stands and legalized abortion is overturned as far as a fully nationalized right that women have, and it gets turned over to the states to decide, what we're going to see is a much bigger focus on who's going to be elected governor in each of these 50 states, who's going to be elected to the state house 
to make the individual state laws about abortion. Those candidates for the last 50 years, while Roe v. Wade was the law of the land and abortion was legal for women across the land, these legislators and these candidates for a state assembly and state senate and governors, they've never been asked or rarely have been asked the question of where they stand on abortion rights. Now, they're going to be asked from the assemblyman candidate to the state senator candidate to the governor candidate. They're all going to be asked, where do you stand on abortion? And they're going to have to run on those positions since their states are going to make the decisions for the women in those states. Right. I would agree with Steve. And some have likened it to the dog chasing the car. And then what's the dog going to do when it actually gets the car? Because Republicans have used this issue to motivate and turn out their voters, especially Christian evangelical voters who have very, very strong opinions and are against abortion. So this will be an issue. And Democratic governors are vowing to defend the right. And some fear that this might be because of the arguments that were used in Justice Alito's draft that this might be just the first and that women's right to use contraceptives in general could be next and also perhaps same-sex marriage or even interracial marriage. What might come next as far as campaign issues to get more people to come out and point to Republicans and say they're the ones who want to get into your lives rather than Democrats. It's a really interesting political dynamic that has now been thrown in to midterms that have been looked at, but now the abortion issue is an issue that Democrats now have to be able to run on and perhaps successfully. Well, another big issue, the polls in the states of Ohio and Indiana on Tuesday decided which candidates the Republican and Democratic parties will field in the upcoming midterms. So how significant were these two primaries to the midterms? Very significant in that, although his name is not on any ballot this year, the primary elections are a test of how strong is Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party. And in Ohio, Donald Trump's endorsed candidate to run for Senate, a man named J.D. Vance, won his primary election over six challengers, many of whom tried to curry Trump's favor and win his endorsement. In Ohio and in Indiana, Trump endorsed candidates won their races to represent the Republicans in House of Representative elections coming up in November. Some of them had some competition. Most of them did not have much competition. So to see whether the test of Trump's hold on the party is still to be tested, his candidate in Ohio won, his candidates in Indiana won, his candidates previously in Texas have won. More primaries are coming up this month and next month. The abortion issue may be something that comes up and takes something away from Trump's candidates. But For the most part, this is what the primary season is going to be about. How strong is Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party? 
That's right, Kim. And we have some more primaries coming up in Pennsylvania and in Georgia. Senate races there where Trump has endorsed in Pennsylvania a popular TV personality, Dr. Oz, and in Georgia, the former senator, Republican Senator Perdue. So we'll be watching again to see if the former president's influence is still enough to basically sway the races there. And in Ohio, as Steve mentioned, J.D. Vance will be facing a moderate Democrat, Tim Ryan, who won his primary. So it seemed to also be a good night for moderate Democrats. They did have resounding wins in the primaries. So does this signify that progressive candidates have a tough road ahead of them? That's a really interesting question because it used to be, if you knew how Ohio was going to vote in the presidential election, you knew who was going to win the presidential election. Ohio was a bellwether for many, many years as far as who was going to win the presidential election. In recent years, it has moved much toward the Republican Party, and Ohio is considered a Republican state. So for the Democrats, if the progressive candidate had won, I think that would have been a very interesting outcome because, honestly, moderate Democrats are going to be the ones who have a chance to win any elected seat in Ohio. In other states, however, I do see progressive candidates, even in red states, making some moves only because there are pockets of progressivism in every state. So you can find a progressive congressional candidate winning an election in a major city in a mostly Republican state. It is going to be very difficult for progressives in some of these states to win their elections, considering that Democrats historically, talking about political history now, over the last 50 to 75 years, when a candidate wins the White House, whether it's the Democrat Joe Biden or whether it was the Republican Donald Trump or even prior to that, only twice when a new president has been elected has the House of Representatives followed that party. Meaning, when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, the 2018 election went to Democrats. In 2012, when Barack Obama won the presidency again, the 2014 election went to Republicans. So this pattern has continued, and Democrats are counting on being able to field the kind of candidates that are going to win in areas where someone who is more moderate to conservative on the Democrat side may have a better chance than progressives do in many of these races. Very interesting. We'll have to continue to follow these developments as we get closer to the midterms. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, the EU proposes to ban all oil imports from Russia by the end of the year. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. 
Well, the EU's top official called on the 27-nation bloc to ban oil imports from Russia in a sixth package of sanctions targeting Moscow for its war in Ukraine. So, Cindy, how are these sanctions so far affecting Russia and what will the sanction on oil imports do? I think that the sanction on oil imports could really be crucial, could potentially be a game changer. Although we have to know that, you know, the EU is saying this is going to be very tough for many of their countries. There's going to be a lot of heated discussion still. And they said that it's going to take months. We're talking about a full ban happening maybe by the end of the year at the soonest. And countries like Germany are very dependent on Russian oil and gas. And, you know, they've already are focused on coal and now they're first tackling oil before gas. But I think it could make it very difficult for Russia, even though Putin is saying, well, we'll just sell our oil to other countries and then the EU will end up buying it from third countries and just paying more for it. And people who are calling and urging for this, like Ukrainian President Zelensky, said basically, you know, the EU is sending us humanitarian aid and military aid, but at the same time, they're spending millions of dollars each day to buy Russian oil. Also, we had President Biden sending to Congress a bill for $33 billion in military, economic, and humanitarian aid for Ukraine, which has overwhelming support. And we had Defense Secretary Austin saying that the U.S. wants to see Russia weakened, Russia's military weakened to a degree that it can never do this to another country. The kind of atrocities and war crimes and targeting of civilians that we have seen in Ukraine. So a very significant week as the war goes into its third month. Something that I picked up during the week, just this little blurb that The Suez Canal has had one of its more profitable quarters because more and more tankers are going from the Gulf nations through the Suez Canal to bring oil and natural gas up to the European continent, which tells me that European countries are starting to look for and secure a more diversified portfolio of energy supplies rather than relying on Russian oil. So that is moving. And here in the United States, as far as support for sanctions, overwhelming. About three quarters of Americans say the U.S. is providing either the right amount of material or not enough support for Ukraine. And two thirds say increase the sanctions on Russia beyond those already in place. So if Europe is able to do what it says it wants to do, which is sanction Russian oil. The United States and Americans seem to back that up. And we'll see if this momentum does anything to hurt or stop the Russians in their quest in Ukraine. The United States and its NATO allies, they have refused to confront Russian forces head on for fear of escalating the fight with Putin, who controls the world's largest nuclear arsenal. With the sanctions, how is Russia responding to this? And is Russia really taking advantage of the U.S. and its allies with this hands-off approach in helping Ukraine? Well, I think, in fact, that the U.S. and NATO countries 
are helping Ukraine. They haven't been advertising it. I mean, they don't have troops on the ground and there's, you know, no fly zone where they're shooting down a Russian aircraft. But reports are coming out that the U.S. has provided very valuable military intelligence. We've seen a striking number of Russian generals killed. And that may be to no small degree to U.S. intelligence helping Ukraine to find and target these uh, generals. So I think that has been very valuable. And Russia is now saying that it may target these supply deliveries coming in from the West. We'll see if that is happening. Russia seems to be going back and hitting Lviv in the West of the country, which has been, I think, the crucial point for supply deliveries. So there is a potential for escalation, but I think there's been a real shift and that more and more countries in the U.S. and NATO countries countries, EU countries, they don't think that it's a guarantee that Russia is going to win this. And the fight now is in the eastern part, concentrate on Donbass. And with support, more and more people are thinking that Ukraine might just be able to push Russian forces out. Also, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and six House Democrats visited with the presidents of Ukraine and Poland to maintain and strengthen ties with the Eastern European countries. What was said about this trip and were any promises made on the part of the U.S.? I think it was much more of a show of support, a physical, demonstrable show of support, certainly by the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, by going to Kiev and meeting with Zelensky, as well as support for the effort that is surrounding Ukraine by NATO countries as far as taking care of all of the Ukrainian refugees. It certainly was a signal that the U.S. Congress, at least the Democrats in the U.S. Congress and those who were running the U.S. Congress, are supportive of giving Ukraine the kind of economic and military aid it needs in order to push back the Russian assault. I think Steve's right that it was a very powerful symbol. And I had to sort of note that Speaker Pelosi and her trademark royal blue pantsuit and matching heels out on the street, walking in Kiev, basically in a war zone. I think that was a very, very powerful signal. And it was very much appreciated by President Zelensky. In our last topic, Japan and South Korea report that North Korea fired a ballistic missile into the waters off its east coast. The launch is North Korea's first since a military parade late on April 25th, at which leader Kim Jong-un vowed to ramp up his development of nuclear arms. How concerning is this missile launch to the U.S.? Well, I think it's very concerning, Kim, and the U.S. and much of the world has had most of its focus on the Ukraine-Russia war. But we have seen rising tensions in North Korea with a big military parade last week with Kim Jong-un showing off all of his new nuclear weapons and this medium-range ballistic missile test, which was condemned by South Korea and Japan and others. And as you said, it seems like Kim Jong-un is flexing his muscles ahead of planned visit by President Biden to South Korea later in May and ahead of the inauguration of South Korea's new and more conservative president next week. And so we've seen North Korea do this in the past. Whenever there There's a change in leadership, either in South Korea or in Washington, that Kim Jong-un likes to have some kind of show of force. And it is obviously concerning because, as Cindy mentioned, the U.S. is trying to deal with the Russia-Ukraine situation. There are other foreign policy matters that are on the table, including in the East Asian region, where the United States is trying to counter 
China's influence. China did not condemn the launch, nor did Russia. So, yes, the United States is very concerned about what this means for the security of the East Asia Pacific region in which lots of U.S. trade goes through. The U.S. has national security interests there. For sure, the U.S. is watching what North Korea does with its missiles quite carefully and moving to try and coalesce allied support to isolate the North even further. And just one other quick question on that. Some analysts looking at this situation say North Korea's quick and pace in weapons testing this year underscores its dual goal of advancing its missile programs and applying pressure on Washington over a deepening freeze in nuclear negotiations. So are there any signs that the talks with the U.S. and North Korea will start again? I haven't seen any signs of that, Kim. And it seemed to be a more of a push during the Trump administration, where we saw then Secretary of State Pompeo traveling to North Korea and former President Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un. That has been taken back to sort of more what traditional lower channels and behind the scenes. But I haven't seen very many signs of it lately. Okay, well, we will have to end the show on that note. My thanks go to our panelist, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 